Well, I don't know what your week has been like. I hope it's been a good one. I'm very excited because my family's going on vacation tomorrow. We're heading out to Midwest. So I'm really excited to, to get through the sermon so we can leave. Um, how's that sound? I'm kidding. I'm actually very excited because I've been, I've been looking forward to moving this podium. No, um, I've been looking forward to today's message because I finally get to talk about a book of the Bible that I read um, almost every single day. Now, if you're just joining us, um, this summer we're kind of doing something a little different than what we usually do. Uh, usually at Centerpoint Bible Church, what we do is, is we, we take a book of the Bible, there are 66 of them, we choose one, and we work through it from beginning to end, verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph, chapter by chapter, and try to understand what the Spirit of God has to say to us through his word. Because God has spoken to man. God has revealed himself to humans. And it's primarily through his word. But what we're doing this summer is, um, we know a lot of people will be in and out, and it's just the way it goes through the summer. What we've done is, instead, we have said, let's do a broad overview of the Old Testament. Let's just take a moment and, and walk through and understand what God wants to communicate to us through the Old Testament. So part of that has been a challenge on you to be reading from your Old Testament. Now, we've, some of us have been reading through it and trying to get through this summer. And, and if you're just now joining us, I encourage you to start in the book of Psalms this week. Go ahead and start reading the book of Psalms. And you can find a calendar over there if you want to follow through with us. But what we're looking for right now, what we're going to talk about is why, why do we study the Old Testament? One of the things I want to point out to you is that when the New Testament was written, when what we have is the New Testament, and most of our, most of our study comes from the New Testament, when the New Testament was written, when, when the authors spoke of Scripture, they were talking about the Old Testament. Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse number 16, all Scripture is inspired by God and useful for teaching and correction And all these things so that the man of God would be thoroughly equipped. So when Paul wrote that in 2 Timothy, he was referring to our Old Testament. So it's important that we go there, that we we seek out God through the Old Testament. So we've been walking through, we started in Genesis. If you were with us a couple months ago, we saw the fall of man and and the degeneration of humankind as as man started out in the garden and worked themselves into really a, a sinful fit. We saw that taking place together. And then we saw God raise up Moses, and he, he brought the children of Israel who were enslaved in Egypt and brought them out of Egypt and took them into the promised land. But they strayed from God, strayed from God. And they cried out for a king, remember that? And God raised up, first of all, King Saul, who didn't have a heart for God. But then he raised up David, and we, we spent some time talking about David and the promises that God made to us through David. Primarily that God would send a descendant of David who would come to earth, would suffer, would die, but would also rule as king from Jerusalem. And we saw that the New Testament revealed to us that that coming king, that descendant of David who would rule all the earth, is no other than Jesus Christ who came and suffered and died for sins and then rose victorious and is now at the right hand of God and will one day 
Come back to earth and rule on earth and bring the righteousness that you and I desire. We desire righteousness. And I don't mean just righteous living. I don't mean you desire to be a good boy or girl. That's not what I mean by desire righteousness. You desire justice. You desire for right to be called right and wrong to be called wrong. That's why when you see something on the news where, an, where, a, where a person is harmed or hurt or abused and in your gut you want to do something about it, you want to kick a door down and, and make things right, right? That is you longing for righteousness. But it's never going to come on this earth. Righteousness will never come until the righteous one comes to rule. No political leader will bring in a time of righteousness. No, no, no special person will ever come and, and fix all that's wrong. It will never happen until Jesus comes. And when Jesus comes, he will rule victorious. And that's when the world will be righteous and right will be right and wrong will be wrong. But now we're here now waiting. We are here now waiting. Turn with me to Psalm chapter 5. Psalm chapter 5. And, and I'm going to look today at the book of Psalms. I'm going to say a lot of things about the book of Psalms. And I have way too much than I do time to say. There's 150 Psalms. Um, if you ever tried to read through them, it's a tough journey. Because the book of Psalms is not like the rest of your Bible. Matter of fact, go to Psalm chapter 1. I sent you to 5, but go to chapter 1. Go to Psalm chapter 1, first of all. You need to know that the book of Psalms is a book of poetry. It's a book of songs. Now, most of us, when we think of poetry, most of us struggle with poetry. You know, maybe the extent of your poetry is roses are red, violets are blue. Um, what is it? Sugar is sweet, and so are you, okay? You know, that, that's, that's, our, that's our experience with poetry, right? And so when we hear poetry, that's what we think of. That's not Hebrew poetry. That's not Hebrew poetry. I'll, I'll give you a hint how you can locate poetry in your Bible. You're in Psalm 1, right? Look back a page. Those of you electronic Bible, I'm frustrating you. But look back a page at Job chapter 42, and here's a, here's a hint of how you can find where you have Hebrew poetry. Look at Job 42, verse number 1. What do you notice about Job 42, verse number 1? You'll notice there's a lot of white on your page. There's a lot of mar there's, there's wide margins. Notice that? And then at verse number 7, it changes to paragraphs. Job 42, verses 1 through 6, is poetry. It's poetry. Verses 7 through the end of Job... It's prose. It's a narrative. So when you turn over to Psalm chapter 1, you'll notice that it's not written in paragraph form. It's not fully justified. It doesn't go from left to right. It's broken up. That's a hint that you have a poem. Now, Hebrew poetry doesn't rhyme like roses are red, violets are blue, sugar is sweet, and so are you. Okay, it doesn't rhyme that way. It's not like a corny Hallmark card. Okay, that's not how poetry works in Hebrew. I'll show you how poetry works, though, in Psalm chapter 1. The way that Hebrew poetry works, and it's, it's a beautiful thing when you see it, is it's not so much about rhyme or meter, iambic pent 
to meter? Is that William Shakespeare? Something like that, okay? I see like two heads nodding. All right, it's not, it's not rhyme and meter like you read Julius Caesar, Romeo and Juliet. That's not it. The way that Hebrew poetry works is the lines that are given in the poem restate a truth. It's called parallelism. Look at Psalm 1.1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of mockers. Now you read that, your American mind reads that, and you're like, okay, I get the point. Why do you keep saying it over and over and over? Blessed is this guy, and he shouldn't sort of fall along with sinners. Well, that's an example of Hebrew poetry. What happens in Hebrew poetry is you have a statement, and then the next line amplifies that statement in a greater way. And the final line amplifies that statement as well. Turn over to Psalm 51. Psalm 51. I gave you a list of psalms on your worship notes, some of my favorites, and I identified this one as when I need it. If you look at Psalm chapter 51, it's the David wrote this psalm when he'd fallen into great sin. And it's a psalm of repentance. It's a psalm where the psalmist deals with his sin before the Lord. I want you to see the example of, of poetry here. Verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Here's what the psalmist is doing. Here's what David is doing. Have mercy on me, O God. Well, how's that going to happen? How's, that gonna, how's God ever going to have mercy on me? Hebrew poetry, the next line amplifies the line above it. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. What does that look like? According to your abundant mercy. What's that look like? Blot out my transgressions. So when you read the Psalms, yes, at times you might read it and think, it's so repetitive. It's like he's saying the same thing over and over and over. Well, I'm going to tell you something about poetry. As corny as it is, every time I walk over to my wife and I say, honey, Roses are red, violets are blue, sugar is sweet, but so are you. Listen, as corny as that is, and as, as silly as it is for me to stand up here and say it in front of all of you, it makes her heart pitter-patter. I know it does. <laughs> it does. That's what poetry does. No matter the form, no matter the way in, in which it's written, Poetry forces the author to slow down. It forces the one who wrote it to slow down and think about his words. And so when we read Hebrew poetry, slow down and think about the words. Look at Psalm 51. Turn over a page if you have to. Look at Psalm 51, verse number 7. Another, another characteristic of Hebrew poetry is there's a lot of imagery, a lot of, of pictures from nature and from the world that, that define or amplify what the psalmist is saying. Look at number seven. He says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Hear the psalmist's heart? He's now slowing down and, and drawing a picture, if you will, of what he desires God to do over his sin. 
Because we all stand before a holy God in sin. And so he's crying out from his heart and he's painting this picture and he's slowing down and thinking about his sin before God. So he says in verse number 10, you see more of this poetry. Created me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Hear this amplification that's happening? The psalmist says something, amplifies. Says something, amplifies. Read it that way. Read it that way. You don't read the book of Psalms the way that you read the Gospels or the way that you read the book of Exodus. When you see that indentation in your Bible, you'll find it in Job, you'll find it in Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, the Song of Solomon. You'll find it in many places in your Bible. You'll find it at times in your New Testament. It's an indicator that the author now has stopped. It's like he pressed pause on life and he sat down and he's there at his desk Pulls out his quill, I guess, I don't know, and slowly thinks about his God and slowly considers the Lord. You read it the same way. Now we'll go to Psalm chapter 5. Psalm chapter 5. This is the psalm I've chosen to to spend some time in today. I really wrestled over what psalm. I mean, I really did. I I battled over this because there are so many of my favorite psalms. I I wanted to talk about the foundation, Psalm chapter 1. The best psalm in all of the Bible, Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I wanted to talk about that one today, but, but I didn't. I wanted to talk about Psalm 51, the psalm that I use when I need it just like you do. When I'm outside, Psalm 42, as the deer panteth for the water. Wanted to do that one. When I'm going to worship, Psalm 63. Oh God, you are my God. I earnestly seek you in the morning. Psalm 119, when I study, that that trumpets the, the beauty of God's word. And when we hunger for God, go to Psalm 119 and and seek out the Lord. Or Psalm 121, when I need help. Where does my help come from, the psalmist writes. My help comes from the Lord God Almighty, who does not sleep, who does not slumber. But what I chose to do today, for for our benefit, is I chose to not pick like a a standard psalm that we all know and, and, and love. I chose to pick one that was a little more obscure, and that's Psalm chapter 5. And I, and I want to I show you the purpose of the book of Psalms. And, and I hope we can get what God is trying to, to provide for us. And the two words that I, that I want you to remember today is express and shape. Express and shape. Let me, let me explain that to you before we go into it and see it. The Psalms... The book of Psalms and and all of the wisdom literature, Job as well, the Song of Solomon, the book of Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, they give us a tool. Now hear this, so important in your relationship with the Lord. They give us a tool to first express our emotions to God. To express your emotion to God. And then to allow your emotions to be shaped by God. Now that is very important because the Psalms, here's how the Psalms work. I get up in the morning just like you and I think about the day ahead of me. Maybe I've had a rough night's sleep. Maybe I've had a bad week. Maybe I've had a great week, but I have emotions. And maybe I get up in the morning and I'm like, Lord, I don't want to have this day. I don't want to do what I have to do today. I want to just go back to bed. 
Or maybe I'm really, really discouraged about what I see in the world. Or maybe I'm feeling a lot of sin and I'm coveting what other people have. Well, the book of Psalms allows me to express that to God as emotion. And then I allow God to shape my emotions. Let me show it to you in Psalm chapter 5. Verse number 1. Follow along with me if you have your Bible. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God. For to you do I pray, O Lord, in the morning, you hear my voice. In the morning, I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and the deceitful man. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down towards your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in the righteousness, because in your righteousness, because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. For there's no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels because of the abundance of their transgressions. Cast them out, for they've rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them that those who love your name may exalt in you for you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. Now, did you feel the emotional roller coaster of the psalmist? I mean, he is up and down, up and down, up and down, just like you, just like you. He starts out like, God, can you even hear me? Are you even there? Are you deaf, God? Do you even know I exist? And then he runs back into the arms of God and he relishes in the love of the Lord. And then he goes back over here and he's like, but look at all the evil around. Look at it. But then he runs back over the steadfast love of God and back and forth and back and forth. It's important to know what's going on when David wrote this. It's very important to know. You can see it. I, I'll just say this. Um, there's more I wanted to say. I don't have time. Look at chapter 3. The heading of chapter 3. A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. And the next three psalms are psalms that David wrote when his son rebelled against him and brought a coup against his kingdom. And his son would meet an untimely death. The very son who rebelled against David would lose his life. And David, in the book of, of 2 Kings, cries out, Oh, Absalom, my son, Absalom, Absalom. He cries out from his heart. So the one who, is, who David is speaking of, the one that David is running from is his own son. The one that he calls evil, the one that he speaks of the wrongdoing, he's his own flesh, 
and blood. How true is it that our own flesh and blood often bring us pain? The ones that, that, the ones that are supposed to love us the most sometimes bring pain. What are you going to do with that kind of pain? What are you going to do? Do what the psalmist did. First of all, you need to express it and run to the Lord. That's where we'll start in verse number one. The first six verses start out with this expression, and we run to the Lord. And man's cry is, can you hear me? Can you hear me, God? He's crying out, can you hear me? Look at it with me, verse number one. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry. The psalmist here is begging that God would hear. And he, he, you can notice the parallelism, the, 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 the nature of Hebrew poetry. Give ears to my words, then they go to groaning, and then they go to crying. And that's how it feels sometimes. Sometimes you go to the Lord and you cry out with emotion and say, God, can you even hear me? And you run to him in this way. That's what the psalmist does. And he's begging that God might hear him. He says, give attention to the sound of my cry. This means take notice of. It means hear and give it regard. Give regard to my cry is what the psalmist is saying. And what he's revealing here is that he's afraid that's not going to happen. You ever feel that way? You ever feel like God's not going to hear your prayer? You ever feel like you're, you're praying and it, it doesn't go beyond the, the ceiling in the room? You're in good company. The psalmist expresses that to the Lord. Can you even hear me? But I love that he doesn't stop there. He, he continues. And notice what he says. Give attention, in verse number two, give attention to the sound of my cry, my king and my God. So the psalmist here in expressing his pain is allowing the knowledge that he has to inform his emotions. Now, folks, this is a very important truth about life. Your emotions, now hear this, your emotions are not a guide. They are not a guide. They're a gauge. Listen to that. Your emotions are a gauge, not a guide. Your emotions reveal to you what's going on in your heart. They reveal what you're feeling at the time, whether that is sorrow or, or discouragement or, or depression or happiness, joy, celebration. They're a gauge of what's going on in your life and how your soul is responding to that. But you cannot stop there. The psalmist never stops there. He expresses emotion, but then he allows the knowledge that he has to inform his emotion. So they are a gauge. You know, it's like when you're, when you're driving and, and all of a sudden you get that check engine light, something's wrong. Something's wrong. It's blinking, now something's really wrong, right? Yeah, that's what that means, in case you're wondering, okay? That's what our emotions are. That's what they are. Heavy sorrow, heavy discouragement, heavy depression. Something's, something's awry. Something isn't just. Something isn't right. 
So we inform our emotions. And look what the psalmist now informed his emotions with. He says, my king and my God. King means master. King means ruler. It means sovereign. It means he's in charge. Maker, my king and my God, I'm sorry. God is the word Elohim. And it means maker. In the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. God here is the maker of man and the ruler over man. Why is the psalmist going there? Because life stinks for him right now. He's on the run from his son who's trying to kill him. Okay? He's hiding in the desert, folks. He's hiding in caves. On the king of Israel. Not some bum off the street. The king of Israel now is running, not from some Philistine, Goliath part two. No, from his son. But he says, my master, my ruler, my sovereign. That's what king means. My maker, my designer, my owner. That's what God means. What are we learning from this? The psalmist is informing his emotions that God is in control. The psalmist is taking knowledge that is stored up from his past now. It's stored up from his past. These things are stored, as you would, on a library of his life. He has somewhere learned in the past that God is my maker and God is my ruler. And now when emotion gauges blinking like crazy, he has something to reach back and grab hold of. He's my maker. He's my ruler. People often say this to me. People will often say, just this week, somebody said this to me. They're going through a hard time. They're going through a struggle. It might be family, it might be your job, it might be your home, it might be a a physical issue, and they'll say this to me. I don't know how people do it without God. I don't know how people do it without God. The answer is, they don't. They don't do it. They run to alcohol or drugs or, or they take their life. They don't do life without God. They don't. I feel sorry for the person, believer or unbeliever, who has no library, who has no knowledge to inform their emotion. You've got to store up the knowledge. You've got to store it up so when the emotional gauges are going crazy, you've got something to reach back to. Look where he goes. Oh, Lord, in the morning, you hear my voice. You hear my voice. In the morning, I prepare a sacrifice for you. And what do I do? I watch. I watch. What's he watching for? He's watching to see, is God hearing? Does God hear me? Now, one of the things that happened in the Psalms is the psalmist is now going to drift off into a lament. Okay? And this lament is going to now speak things that will shock you. Especially when you realize that he's talking about his son. He's now going to talk about his own son. And it's, it's not all flowery, you know, pastor talk. This isn't, you know, shepherd like, you know, lamb on his shoulders. Oh, Jesus is such a nice guy. 
This is now some pretty serious words. Look what he says. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evil doers. This is real, folks. This is real. This is just. It is true that God hates evil. And there's times that we need to have that knowledge. There's times we need to have the knowledge that God does hate evil. When I see on the news that some small child has been abused by some adult in their life, I'm telling you, I, I cry this. God, you hate evil. This is wrong. This is wrong what is happening. I know. It's emotion that we have. But it's a gauge, not a guide. So as much as I may feel like kicking a door down with a baseball bat in my hand, I know, whoa, 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 whoa. This is a gauge, not a guide. I express this to God and I allow the Lord to shape my emotions. See how this works? I express to God, God, do you hear me? I'm reminded of the library. He hears me. He loves me. He made me. He knows me. That shapes my emotion. Now I'm going to express to God my hatred of this evil. He'll shape me. He'll shape me. Look at the expression. You destroy, verse number six, you destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and the deceitful man. And then verse seven. There's a shaping coming. There's a shaping coming. Look where the psalmist goes. But me. But I. Through the abundance of your steadfast love will enter your house. What just happened here? What just happened? The psalmist in four, five, and six is slowly climbing his pedestal. He's slowly climbing up to where he's now hating evil and, and, and abhorring evil, but God brings mercy to his mind. Verse number seven, but I, through the abundance of your steadfast love. We've talked about this word, steadfast love, before. It's probably one of your most important words in your whole Old Testament, okay? It's the hased love of God. And it, it's translated many different ways. It's translated loving kindness. It's translated goodness. It's, it's translated steadfast love. It's, it's translated mercy. The psalmist now is being shaped by the Lord as he remembers the mercy of God. See it. I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. How can he get there? The only way the psalmist can come into the presence of God is through God's steadfast love. See, he expressed this, this anger towards evil. He expressed this emotion towards evil, but now God is shaping him and saying, David, David, remember who you are? 
Remember Bathsheba? Remember Uriah? Bathsheba's husband? Who you arranged for her murder? Who you had an affair with? Though you weren't married to her? And you had a child? And you lied to the whole kingdom? And then the child died? Because of your sin? Remember that, David? And David says, oh yeah. Steadfast love. Steadfast love. Your loyal love, God. That's the only reason I can come into your presence. I bow down toward your holy temple in fear of you. So lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness Because of my enemies, they're all around me. Make your way straight before me. Folks, this is the way the Psalms work. No, that's not the accurate way to say it. This is the way your personal God works. God meets you where you're at. God doesn't say, shine yourself up, make yourself look nice, I'll meet you in the morning. That's not the way the Lord works. God calls to you to come to him as you are. Flat out as you are right now. With your emotions, with your garbage, you bring it to him as you are. Just like the psalmist, you do not deserve to enter into the presence of God. Not on your own. As a matter of fact, the Bible says that if there's cherished sin in your heart, God doesn't even hear your prayer. So the reality is, verse number one, God, do you even hear me outside of Christ? The answer is no. No. But God invites us to come to him and come real. Express your emotion to God. Express it to him. And then allow him to take the truth that he has instilled in you to shape your emotion. And so then you can be like the psalmist. Jump down to verse number 11 for sake of time. Verse number 11, he says, But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. He's hiding in the desert and he's rejoicing. Why? Let them ever sing for joy. Spread your protection over them. And those who love your name, that they may exalt in you. I want to take a moment and turn to what I've labeled in my heart the Psalm of 2018. For me, okay? I just crack open a little bit, share, share my personal relationship with the Lord. Go Psalm 31. Psalm 31. I don't have it memorized, but I probably will by December 31st. Because t- this, this page in my Bible has opened up multiple times this year. It's another one of the lament psalms. And the first three-fifths of the Bible, most of your Bible, most of your psalms are lament psalms. These are psalms where the psalmist cries out against the injustice in the world. The second two-fifths are primarily praise psalms. This is where the psalmist rejoices over God's work in the world. David wrote most of your psalms in the first three-fifths. Most of the lament psalms, David, King David, Shepherd David wrote. 
he wrote this one. Let's read it. Verse number one. I kind of talk along the way, okay? In you, O Lord, covenant name of God, the loyal name of God, Yahweh, always has been, never had a beginning, never had an end, always has been the Lord. Do I take refuge? Refuge here is a word for a safe place. Most often to be in the, in, in the crack or a crevice of a mountain. You think of a cave. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. There are times in my life where honestly I fear. Like, Lord, I don't, I don't want to shame you. I don't want to bring shame on you. I don't want to do that, God. Protect me. Keep me in your righteousness, Lord. Allow me to walk with you. Incline your ear to me. Oh God, I, I'm crying out to you. Do you hear me? If so, rescue me speedily. I love that. Is that not an emotion that we often feel? God, I can't wait. This cannot wait, God. We, there can be no haste here. We, we need action now, God. Be a rock of refuge to me, a strong fortress to save me, for you are my rock. See the shaping here? See the shaping? You heard the expression. I need a rock, God. I need a refuge. Now look at the shape. You are my rock and my fortress, and for your name's sake, you lead me and guide me. It's not for my sake. It's not for me. It never was. It never will be. You lead me, God, for your sake. You take me out of the net they've hidden for me. You ever feel like somebody's got a, got a hidden net? It's like every time you turn around, they sneak up and they grab you. And all of a sudden, you find yourself caught in one of those big jungle nets that are made for tigers, but you find yourself in it. That's how the psalmist felt. There's a net. For you are my refuge. So rather than the net... That has grabbed me. Look at the shaping. Into your hand I commit my spirit. That should sound very familiar. Quoted by a very important man. Quoted by a very important God. As Jesus hung on the cross. He prayed God. I commit my spirit unto you. And it is through that act, verse number five, that I stand with the Lord redeemed. You have redeemed me, O Lord, my faithful God. Listen, folks, you've got to build up your library. You've got to fill up your library. Because this place is battlefield. It's not a pleasure cruise. It's a battlefield. And you're going to encounter times where you are going to throw up your hands and say, God, do you hear me? Are you there? And you need the shape of the truth of God to come evident in your soul. Let's go to the Lord. Father in heaven, Lord, thank you. Thank you for your grace. 
Thank you for your real touch. Lord, this is not some fairy tale. This is the work of the creator, God. We thank you, Lord, for your grace. I thank you for the fact that Jesus went to the cross and died so we can have relationship with you. May we run there when we need you greatly. May we run to your ears that are ready to hear. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.